You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. Okay, Michael Waldman is president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. During his tenure leading that important organization, the Brennan Center has become one of the nation's essential sources of nonpartisan clarity around otherwise contentious and disputed issues core to the democracy. Things like voting rights, election integrity, money in politics, the independence of the judiciary, and more. He's also the author of... Um, uh, the clearest explanation of the challenge posed to our democracy by the current captured Supreme Court. His recent book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America, read it. It's good. It covers a lot of ground we've talked about on this show, but it does so with real clarity and a lot of context. On top of everything else, of course, Mr. Waldman is a terrific writer. He was a speechwriter for Bill Clinton back in the day. I think everyone listening should pick up this book. The topic is tough, but the writing isn't. It's clear. It's accessible. It's invariably interesting and deeply thoughtful. And Michael and I had a chance to catch up. Listen. Um, Well, Michael, I want to talk to you about your book, uh, the work of the Brennan Center, the state of our democracy. And, and, you know, what you think Americans can do to get through this moment. It's a lot. And along the way, I hope you'll tell us a little bit about your own journey. So welcome. Oh, it's great to be with you. Hey, maybe we can start with the book. Um, I loved it. There's been so much written about the Supremes. Um, What made you decide to write a book about them? Well, I work at the Brennan Center. As as you say, uh, we work on voting rights. We work on all kinds of constitutional issues relating to our democracy, especially. And I knew that the Supreme Court was... um, important and I knew that it was uh, making big changes and I had a feeling that what we were going to see in the year culminating in June of 2022 the first year of the supermajority of six very conservative justices I had a feeling that that was going to lead to some very big changes Um, and and it really did of course and drama and controversy and uh, in the end if you think about the last Two years. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It radically loosened gun laws all across the country. Um, It ended affirmative action, uh, uh, consideration of race in university admissions. This is massive social change crammed into a very short period of time by nine unelected government officials. I thought that was an important story to tell. A really important story to tell. complicated, but you write so clearly. Um, uh, Your thesis, I think, was that this is the culmination of a decades-long backlash um, that began uh, in the 1960s. Do you want to sort of give us the context? Well, that's exactly right. Um, You know, if you think about it in the very long term, our Supreme Court plays this hugely powerful role. And it, it, the part of the Constitution where the Supreme Court and the courts are discussed is only one-tenth the length of the parts dealing with Congress and the president, the elect, in other words, the, the democratically accountable branches. Um, and only over many years did the Supreme Court sort of develop this role of of being not kind of equal checks and balances, but in a lot of ways over the other branches. And, and it has this power because we all give it this power. 
Um, and, and in truth, over the years, over the centuries, the Supreme Court has reflected the political consensus of the time, whatever time it was. Um, it kind of hugs the middle. But it turns out there have been just a few other times when the Supreme Court was extreme or at, unduly activist or ideological or even partisan. And there's always been a huge backlash. And what, the first of those times was when the Supreme Court issued the Dred Scott decision in 1857, which some of us might remember, at least from you know high school history, <laughs> which was basically said that slavery could not be limited to the South um, and that black people had no rights as citizens. And it was the response was so outraged, it led to the rise of the Republican Party and the election of Abraham Lincoln as president. Um, and was a very political backlash. The same kind of thing happened in the early 20th century uh, when the Supreme Court tried to stop government from acting to protect workers and women and public safety, you know, at a time of great industrialization and all the changes and drama of that era. And again, there was a huge backlash. Um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's 1912 presidential campaign, when he was running as a third-party candidate, his main issue, one of his main issues was taking on the Supreme Court. And then there was a period uh, of what's called the Warren Court, named after the the Chief Justice Earl Warren, and they did extraordinarily important things, like Brown versus Board of Education, but a lot of other big cases that went really far and really fast. And we saw a long-term backlash against things like Roe v. Wade. It built over many years, and we're still living in that backlash. And it's taken a lot of political organizing by conservatives, but they have succeeded in capturing the federal courts. And now they're moving really hard and really fast, and I think we're seeing another backlash. Yeah, well, I'm doing everything I can to contribute to that backlash. <laughs> so... Um... I, I, I hope you're right. Uh, the history that you wrote about is so alive and so present. And I just think about that Teddy Roosevelt moment. You wrote about his speech in Ohio. And that's the speech where, on top of everything else, he said that the people need the right to correct uh, the government when it goes wrong. And that's that led to the citizen initiative on mm-hmm. able to change the constitution and all the very subject of an election just this last this last August a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean we're living these fights for American democracy every decade, every year, but certainly now. I mean we're we're right now we're in the middle of a great fight for the future of American democracy, and some very basic premises are on the line of the right to vote and having elections counted, votes counted and peaceful transfer of power. And a lot of political elites are kind of, when they, when they don't like the way things are turning out, they're, they're trying to change the rules. So you, you were just referring to the, the ballot measure, I think in Ohio, uh, in August where, um, you know, there've been ballot initiatives all across the country, after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which, you know, as you know, and as listeners know, reflected a protection of reproductive rights in the federal constitution for half a century. And in the Dobbs case, the Supreme Court said, oh, that was egregiously wrong. And, and where, where there is no, there is no constitutional federal constitutional right that never has been. 
and it's, uh, it's now up to the states. Well, so you're seeing ballot initiatives in states all across the country where the people are making really clear they don't like that decision and that they want those reproductive rights enshrined in their own state constitutions. So there's going to be a ballot initiative in Ohio in November to guarantee abortion rights. So the Republican legislators said, oh, let's, have a, let's, let's put a different ballot initiative on in August when we don't figure anybody will vote. That changes the rules on how you can get a ballot initiative. It actually says you need 60% of the vote, a lot of other things. And I think they thought they were pulling a fast one, but it overwhelmingly lost. People do not want their rights taken away. And, and that, that's, you know, people ask me, what gives me hope? It's this kind of fierce and focused response popping up all over the country that, that is uh, one positive sign. Yeah, I mean, the idea that there could be anything that's too cynical for Ohio is a really positive sign. <laughs> and, you know, Ohio is an interesting state, and you see this in many other states. For the longest time, Ohio, first of all, was kind of a moderate state. It was always um, politically divided, a swing state. You had Republican governors and senators and Democratic governors and senators. But in recent years, it's moved hard to the right, and a lot of that has had to do with gerrymandering. Yeah. Um, and the ways that when they get the chance, politicians draw the electoral maps to cement themselves in power. And that is another thing. There's going to be a ballot initiative in Ohio dealing with that as well. So the people are pushing back in different ways. Yeah, it's very exciting. We talk about Ohio a lot on this show. Most of my focus is on what's going on in the states, because mm -hmm. that's where a lot of the damage is. But related to your book, I see the the states as the sword of the autocracy movement, but the Supreme Court has been their shield, protecting them um, yes. in, in many ways. Well, you know, it, 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 it turns out, you know, one of the things that was so significant in the last 70 years, last half century, was really for the first time in the country's history, we had this idea that your rights were the same wherever you lived. It didn't matter which state you were in. And that was partly a result of the Supreme Court, as well as the federal government, creating a national set of standards. But it turns out, as we're seeing now, that if Congress, for example, can't protect voting rights because of the filibuster and other things that make it hard for Congress to act, and the federal courts will not protect voting rights, then states can do whatever they want. And they're they're given free reign, and it's going to in some states, not all, it's going to only get worse. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think I wasn't going to go here, but I, I think a lot of the reason we have this difficulty with the Supreme Court is less an Article Three problem than an Article One problem, and they're mm -hmm. related. But once the Supreme Court. Um, with Citizens United, opened up unlimited amounts of money, mostly dark money, pouring into congressional elections. We broke Congress in some ways, and it's it's inability. Yeah, you know, to I act. think that's so. That's such a wise point. So many of the problems with the Supreme Court have to do with how people get on the Supreme Court. It, it, it's with the polarization and the ideological takeover and the, and the the tens of millions of dollars spent. Uh, to push these nominees and get them. But con Congress is as polarized 
and broken and dysfunctional as it is, in part because of rulings by the Supreme Court. Yeah. Citizens United was in 2010, and it, there's a risk that we get used to it, and we're sort of take for granted the world in which we live, which is so drenched with big money in politics. But that is a decision that had a big, big impact. If you, Here's an example. When you talk to people in Congress, what they're worried about, when you say, why are the people, why, why, why are the parties so polarized? Why especially are the Republicans so far to the right? They're afraid of being primaried by somebody coming in with massive suitcases of dark money, undisclosed money from, from these shadowy groups. And it really affects the workings of government. And here's a good example. Before 2010, both parties in the United States believed in climate change at different policies. Uh, but John McCain and Lindsey Graham had a climate change bill. And then it came Citizens United. And now fossil fuel money uh, is the dominant force in a lot of ways in the Republican primaries. And now the Republican Party since 2010 is the only major political party in any developed democracy that just denies the existence of climate change. It's not a coincidence. Yeah. Um, and And these gobs of cash are coming to support these candidates in districts they drew to be radicalized. So it's a perfect storm for the Republican Party. They created it, but it's a perfect storm. And, you know, let's be uh, clear, Democrats gerrymander when they can, too. <laughs> That's how well, they, my Democrat, view. I live in Illinois. I, I, right? I live in Illinois. There's no question yeah. that Democrats would commit all the same crimes. But the, the thing is, Michael, when, when that midterm election, when Barack Obama was president, when the Republicans ran the tables, coincided with the creation of new data analytics and new map-making technologies mm-hmm. that perfected the gerrymander. It used to be that gerrymandering was this kind of charming dark art (laughs) that a few political wizards in each state knew how to do. The the California maps and the you know a few decades ago, which were very gerrymandered in that case for the Democrats, Mm -hmm. um, one congressman drew them on a on a tablecloth at a Chinese restaurant in Sacramento, and and that was uh, kind of how it was done. And now with the digital tools. and it becomes much easier to draw a district that's so precisely calibrated to retain the party in power yeah. that it's much harder to dislodge. Yeah, we're finding that in Ohio. Michigan did it, but um, Wisconsin might, but it's a fight. Hey, I want to talk about some of the some of the really interesting ideas in your book, too. I mean, f- for example, um, you talk about the balance between focusing on rights versus focusing on social systems and equality. I thought that was really interesting and how liberals over time, maybe because we outsourced our thinking to the lawyers, forgive me, focused on the, on, on identifying progress through thinking about rights when there was a time when we identified progress by thinking about social systems and equality. You want to talk about that because I thought that was brilliant. yeah. Well, the, I, you're, I think I think uh, you're you're right in seeing that as a theme uh, that I found throughout the book. In in that you know it's an interesting thing. 
for a long time, liberals, progressives, what they wanted more than anything else was judicial restraint. Because they understood that the courts, as a general matter, sort of were a, a conservative force, maybe a reactionary force. They represented property rights. And what they wanted more than anything else, the progressives of the past, was for the democratically accountable systems to create policy and to advance equality. There was this period in the Warren Court era, or the mid-20th century, where the Supreme Court, for the only time, was ahead of the country in, in advancing rights and promoting equality. And at the time, liberals got used to the notion that what mattered was rights rather than outcomes and what rather than systems rather than democracy and, and making the democracy work for people and that you could go to court to advance the goals and that that was okay that was a good that was a good way to do it and that uh, and, and they sort of lost the muscle memory in in many instances of how to make the case to the public how to win in the court of public opinion um, and how to build movements and coalitions and you know, and then the Supreme Court became pretty conservative pretty quickly, but the glow from that era lasted for a long time. I think it is finally the, the moment where liberals are falling out of love with, with the Supreme Court and, and understanding that pushing for rights is not necessarily the best way to get to the outcomes you want. Um, and, you know, conservatives, on the other hand, uh, for a long time built their social conservative movements built their movements in the churches and other places in response to this. But now in a sense, you're seeing a, a reversal of roles because the conservatives see the courts as their um, fortress and yep. they're turning everything into a rights issue for, for you know, property rights or, or using the first amendment to poke holes in all kinds of laws. So it's a little bit of a role reversal, but I think this is a really important lesson for liberals to unlearn. Yeah, and I guess the other vector from this is the focus on individual rights versus a focus on empowered legislatures. And I don't mean to say that they are in conflict. They're just different places to focus. And, 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 well. yeah, and, and, you know, legislation involves compromise. Legislation, if you want to win in legislatures, you really have to find a way to formulate your arguments and build your coalitions that build a majority of the public in some way or, 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 uh, or, you know, that aren't just a kind of an on off switch. Do you have the right or not? It's not a yes or no thing. And that, um, that is, uh, uh, that is something where, you know, a lot of, key progressive voices, activists, and thinkers have urged this over the years. Barack Obama, when he was a state senator, he gave an interview to the public radio station in Chicago, mm -hmm. which was really interesting. And it later on got misused in, when he was running for president as implying that he wanted the courts to distribute everybody's wealth. And it was actually the opposite thing he was saying. He was saying that the civil rights movement had become too court-focused and not enough about building coalitions and building legislative majorities. Ruth yeah. Bader Ginsburg was a real critic of Roe v. Wade. Um, she felt it was a way to, um, as she called it, breathtaking a ruling. 
and that there were ways, and she certainly supported abortion rights, and obviously women's rights as one of the great leading fighters for that over the years. She felt there were ways to do it that were more rooted in equal protection and other kind of um, longstanding approaches that, that had a better chance of standing the test of time. So this has been sort of a quiet debate over the years, and now we have no choice but to, to kind of step up, I think. So um, I think we have a chance to step up because the co- the old school idea of coalitions is back when you think the people who care about reproductive freedom, the people who care about climate change, the people who care about voting rights and civil rights, um, they've all been offended by the same crowd. And they're all now um, in coalition, people who care about labor, in in coalition in ways they haven't been in decades. Um, uh, And I... Yeah, I I hope... I mean, that's the only way change has ever happened for good in this country. Yeah, except, as you point out, the Warren Court. That was an odd aberration, but, yep. But that Um, was, they also, it's an interesting thing. They, first of all, they came, they were surfing the wave of social change. Yes. That was happening otherwise uh, on the streets and legislatures. And even they had an important role, but not the only role. So Brown versus Board of Education, for example, was in 1953. It was certainly the right thing to do. It was extraordinarily important. It declared segregation and separate but equal to be unconstitutional. And it was not actually a very controversial decision. It was a very popular decision outside the white South at the time. But it also didn't have that much of an impact. A decade later, only 3% of black children were going to integrated schools in the South. Um, It was only when... Yeah, the backlash was so intense. And it was only when the civil rights movement, it took to the streets and then the legislative results of that, like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the federal government with its power came in, then you really started to see the change. And so it wasn't just the courts, but the Warren Court was... um, blamed for a lot of things and, and, and it moved so fast. And, and look, I support all of pretty much all the things they, they did. Um, I think that in, in our goal, my goal, at least as a, as a liberal, which I am, is, is not that someday there'll be six liberal alitos on the Supreme court. I, I think that the Supreme court needs to know its place in the American system, not be arrogant, not be imperialistic, which I think it, it is these days. And I think one of the things we need to try to make sure happens is that the reform of the court itself becomes something that people are talking about. So, you know, uh, I certainly think the Supreme Court shouldn't be the only court in the country without a code of ethics. And so uh, they need an ethics code. They do need an ethics code. You sat on the commission, the President Biden's commission on Supreme Court reform. Um, and we yes. talked about that a little bit on this show. And I thought there were some really interesting ideas discussed in that. I mean, none were recommended. I can't imagine how difficult those conversations were. Well, they, we were, a lot we of were really literally, you know, these government commissions are, they, they're sort of set up to not do anything sometimes. And we were literally instructed at the outset not to reach conclusions. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't. 
So, but the ideas know. were good. I mean, I thought some of them were really interesting, like the notion of having, you know, a rotation of federal judges sit up there for a while and then have to live with the consequences when they go to the. Well, that, that kind of thing would would <laughs> would have a role for a Supreme Court, but wouldn't make this like this massive um, national nervous breakdown every time there's a Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, the, the other idea that had a lot of resonance, uh, in, both on the commission and in, in the public input to the commission was the idea of term limits, yes. um, which are actually broadly popular. It's sort of an interesting thing. You know, we had public hearings. We heard from dozens of public witnesses. We heard from dozens of public witnesses, um, from all across the political spectrum, and they disagreed on lots of things. Some said um, for court expansion. Some said I'm against court expansion. Some said I'm for a code of ethics. Some said I'm against the code of ethics. Over and over again, they said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. There, there's actually a, a, a national consensus on this. The polls show it. We at the Brennan Center have just done considerable polling to confirm this. Uh, across Republicans and Democrats, it's basically rooted in this great sensible notion that nobody should have that much public power for too long. Yeah. And, um, you know, think about George Washington, um, uh, you know, limiting himself to two terms. It's the same notion. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, you could do it certainly by constitutional amendment. Um, you, we think you could do it by statute. Um, that you could require justices to become senior justices, uh, change their role basically after 18 years, or the kind of thing you mentioned, uh, you know, rotating appeals court judges. Yeah. And there's all different kinds of ways of doing it. It, it. It's an idea whose time has come. It doesn't mean it's going to happen right away, but I think it will happen. Yeah, I mean, the benefit of commissions like that is that they create ideas that percolate and then eventually happen, but not in that moment. So, so the current backlash that I think we are in <clears throat> to this Supreme Court, um, <clears throat> do you think it'll have, <clears throat> excuse me, Michael, a, an effect akin to the one created by FDR? I mean, th- this term felt, this current term, the one they just finished, felt a little less damaging than the one before it. Um, I think they backed off a little on voting rights and, um, you know, they supported, after all, rather than striking down the Voting Rights Act in a racial gerrymandering case, which I'm, you know, they didn't want to do, but they did. And they walked away from the crazy independent state legislature doctrine, which they could have adopted. When I read those decisions, it, and, and I mean, again, this is me as literary critic, not lawyer, but John Roberts sounded broken. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting question, because those two rulings that you mentioned, yeah. were really important. And, and the Voting Rights Act ruling in, in particular was a real surprise. And my group, the Brennan Center, worked on both of those cases in different ways. And it, the reason the Voting Rights Act case was such a shock, and that was it, it upheld the remaining part of the Voting Rights Act, the great civil rights statute, yep. um, especially for use in a way that will affect um, redistricting all over the South and create and black congressional districts. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was such a shock because John Roberts himself had been on a career long crusade to destroy that very part of that very law. Um, And so 
it, 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 I can't entirely figure out how they got there. I thought it was the right decision, but you're right that it's very possible. Roberts, you know, Roberts was not in the majority on the Dobbs case. And he found his court getting away from him. And more than that, he does seem to care about the institutional legitimacy of the court in the sense that he knows that public trust in the Supreme Court has collapsed to the lowest level ever recorded. And that when that happens, they lose their power. Um, So on the voting rights case and the, as you said, this absolutely insane Independent state legislature notion that they could that the Constitution had had given all the power to state legislatures to set election rules and nobody ever noticed it until now. Right, um, no practice that they even considered it. Right. Yeah, they shouldn't have taken the case. That's the thing is we have yeah. to. Te- it, these were victories, but I at least worked to try to temper my exultation about that with the fact that they shouldn't have taken the, either of these cases. Right. And in each case, what they did was leave the status quo in place. It wasn't like they were striking some great new blow for for democracy. And then there were a bunch of other cases, such as the affirmative action case, where they continue to move hard to the right. And where Roberts is part of that effort. What they're going to focus on now, uh, if you look at the, the cases coming up in the next term, one of those three days in June that I write about in my book, The Supermajority, in June of 2022. In three days, they crammed decades of social policy into those three days. One of the days was the Dobbs case. Another one was the Bruin case, which was by far the most radical Second Amendment ruling in the country's history. It basically said that you cannot consider um, current public safety needs in deciding whether a gun law is constitutional. You can only look at, quote, history and tradition, by which they mean, what did they do in 1791? It, it's a completely absurd way to run a modern country. And that's that was another one. But the third ruling is something that is going to have a long life and that we're seeing them continue to unfold and press forward with. That was a case called West Virginia versus EPA, and it was about climate change. But what it really was about was gutting the power of regulatory agencies to act. And in that case, they said, well, if something is a major question, um, then even if the law allows an agency to take an action, it's just still too important and they can't. And that was about climate change, but you're going to see this happen on labor issues, on environmental issues, and they've taken a bunch of cases, including some major cases this year, and they will do it more and more um, to try to use the Constitution and use the courts to gut the power of the federal to protect um, the environment and public safety. Uh, and, you know, it'll be a little less visible than something like abortion rights, but the impact is going to be huge. So let's let's give the context for this because it's so important. This goes back to um, the Lochner era when the court said, "Yeah, you know what? Business is not really something the government has any business regulating." And FDR's enormous fight in the 1930s to create a state where we could regulate commerce um, to save the democracy, to save capitalism, but apparently thankless to task that that was, because go fast forward to the 1970s and you had Lewis Powell on behalf of big business write this secret memo, which he didn't tell anybody about until after he became a Supreme Court judge, 
Um, and that memo said, hey, guys, organize and capture the court for the purpose of fighting environmental and consumer protection laws, which are coming up. And, and we have this regulatory state now that protects people and the environment, and they've never liked it. And, and that, that you're, you, you've just articulated the history really well. You know, when FDR tried to expand the court, and he lost in 1937, and it really blew up his political coalition. But the Supreme Court also backed down. And at that point, it started saying, well, if a, if a regulation is reasonable, we're not going to stand in the way. And this was what enabled the modern, successful country to grow. But there were always a few business lobbyists and, you know, thinkers who thought this was just a terrible tragedy. <laughs> and they called it the um, Constitution in exile, that there had been a big mistake in 1937, and, and, that, uh, and, and they wanted to try to get the courts to do something about it, and they didn't succeed until now. And the reason they're succeeding now is that the this is not just change that happens, you know, in the air or even with kind of um, uh, ivory tower intellectual ruminations. There's a really fierce political organizing drive to capture the federal courts. The Supreme Court now has been captured by a faction of a faction. Um, it, it, it's part of a well-oiled political machine, and it turns out a very well-funded political machine, too. The Federalist Society, which is, as you know, is this organization of, of conservative lawyers that recruits judges, vets them. They provided the names to Donald Trump for who he should appoint. Um, and, and, and that kind of thing, uh, has extraordinary impact in, in the courts and in sort of who gets to be on the federal courts, at least from the conservative or, or Republican side. And, you know, I always used to look at the Federalist Society. I run the Brennan Center. we sort of in this world, I used to look at them and say, wow, they're, they're very effective, obviously, and they don't really seem to have that much money. Well, it turns out <laughs> that someone had given Leonard Leo, the leader of the Federalist Society, a few years ago, $1.6 billion secretly. Yeah, bear in El Chicago. <laughs> yep, yeah. not from here. And yeah. so that there are tens of millions of dollars spent on each of these nominees with ad campaigns when they blocked Merrick Garland's nomination by President Obama from even being heard by the Senate. It turns out there were tens of millions of dollars in ads backing that. Um, they also used this money to create organizations to file the briefs in front of the judges that they've picked. You know, there's a country kind of obsessed with conspiracies over the years. <laughs> you know, the Masons and... <laughs> QAnon, this is happening in plain sight. And it's, again, we've never had anything like this, this kind of takeover of this branch of government with unelected and lifetime appointments. So, Michael, the, the takeover, what it really means, so we can be clear with everybody, is that you have an outcomes first rationale at the Supreme Court. Outcomes first, and then they look for the, the legal rationale after, because after all, the lobbyists don't care about, they're not into the jurisprudence. And to me, I mean, I spent, you know, a dozen years of my life working in places like Saudi Arabia, where they have a judiciary, and you know, they have, you know, they have a judiciary, but they don't have rule of law. It's, it, it seems to me the message that this court has sent America is that judicial legitimacy 
is less important than judicial power. And their legitimacy is going to come from their power. It's the rule by law, not the rule of law. And it's a complete break from the democratic tradition. And, and in this country is when the power comes from legitimacy from the other way around, because again, yeah. they're, they're not, they don't have an army. They only have, uh, they only have our willingness to go along with what they say. And so that, you know, does go back to something you mentioned about um, the rulings last year, uh, excuse me, this most recent June. Um, does it reflect any kind of a chastening on their part of pulling back? And, mm-hmm. and, and it, you know, we'll see whether Roberts is trying to pull Barrett, uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, and, and Kavanaugh uh, into having their foot on the brake to a certain degree, but they're still steering the car in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I ultimately think that the public backlash both is the one thing that can chase in the court and push it back, but ultimately also make structural changes um, and political changes and legal changes that can push, push back. Um, you know, there's everything, as I said, from term limits and an ethics code. You know, Justice Alito the other day said, oh, co-, he intervened and said, oh, Congress has no power to do that. And Elena Kagan said, Justice Kagan, that's nonsense. So you now have them issuing dueling, yes. you know, pronunciamentos. But Kagan's right. Of course, Congress has the power. In the Constitution, Congress has the power to set all these rules for the Supreme Court. Yeah. But but we could pass constitutional amendments. There are laws. Congress, Congress could restore the full strength of the Voting Rights Act, for example, tomorrow. They could. They could. If it chose to. And it's a matter of political will, not constitutional practice. Yeah, as I say, we have an Article One problem. But um, let me go back. You mentioned that you know they don't have an army; they can't really enforce what they do. Their dictates depend on us accepting them. And you know who's not accepting them? The right in America. We have Alabama now mm-hmm. on that very ruling we're talking about, refusing to comply. And and we've seen this with sheriffs and other people. And I wonder, I you know. I wonder how we can continue to have rule of law if they do this, because it won't be long before the citizens in my city, Chicago, say, you know what, uh, uh, McDonald uh, followed, you know, by this term, these gun laws, forget it. We're going to just we're just going to say they don't count here because it's a problem for our citizens. And, and uh, you know, and is, you're so what, what they did in Alabama. The Supreme Court specifically ruled that they that the the decision by courts, federal courts at every level, including appeals court judges also appointed by Trump, had said that the Alabama congressional map was a racially discriminatory gerrymander. And in effect, that Alabama had to have one more congressional district that was likely to be represented by a black person and under the Voting Rights Act. And. The Alabama legislature just said, you know, the hell with it. No. <laughs> no. And and so it's a real it's 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 akin to what they did in the fifties, massive resistance. They just didn't said we're not gonna cater to these, you know, Yankee courts or whatever. <laughs> and um and so it's a real challenge for the legitimacy and effectiveness of the federal courts on this, including the Supreme Court. And so it's gonna be a real test for them of whether they're gonna stand up. 
and they won't do it. You know? And we saw something similar in Ohio, as you know, where yes, we did. the Ohio Supreme Court, uh, the Brennan Center, which I lead, uh, represented uh, voters in these cases um, with many others. Uh, seven times the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that that state's map was an unconstitutional gerrymander under the Ohio state constitution. The legislature just said, we're going to ignore it. So now there's going to be this ballot measure, and the leader of the effort to pass the ballot measure is the recently retired Republican chief justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, um, who... who uh, who is doing this. And so I think it's pretty important. But look, I mean, you're so right. When you think of the way the gun laws of this country are being upended by the Supreme Court's ruling, and states and cities could say, well, look, you allowed Texas to effectively ignore Roe v. Wade um, a year or two ago, even before the Dobbs case. And Alabama Republicans are ignoring the, the federal courts and Supreme Court Voting Rights Act cases. Why should we just repeal all our gun laws just because you said so? And what? that is a real risk. Uh, if, but, but part of the answer is the rulings have to be not so extreme that it provokes that kind of response. Because it can't only be one side of the political divide. I can't do it. I can't get my head around, though, maybe because I've lived in a country where we have a sort of unified rule of law. I can't get my head around thinking about what that would be like. And I, I every time I think about it, as much as I don't want to live under these gun laws, I think they're terrible or these lack of gun laws. Um, I, I, the idea that we can that we don't have unified law, that, that we can just defy the rule, the, the rulings of a court is very frightening to me about, you know, how we hold the country together. Well, and it is, it's especially in this country, you know, we, um, Thomas Paine, I think at the very beginning said, well, in, in America, the, the law is king. We, we're, we're a country that at least in theory doesn't say that we're defined by race or religion uh, or, 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 you know, loyalty to, to the royals, but to, to the adherence to these ideals and to these documents, <laughs> the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And it's been that way from the beginning. And of course, it's a huge struggle. Um, but we, we have been unusually dependent on reverence for the rule of law in this country for what holds us together. And again, this is, it's not like it's been easy. But but it also isn't brand new. De Tocqueville, as I mentioned in the book, who was the French visitor who came to the United States in the 1830s, and you know to see what is this democracy thing like, he said, you know, in this country, every big question sooner or later ends up as a lawsuit. Yeah. And, and he he said that's because there's no formal aristocracy, and the lawyers sometimes play that role of almost mediating between the masses and and and, and the elites. Um, and, and, and so it's really unusually important that the rule of law be meaningful and fairly and uniformly applied in this country. And I think it's a pretty deeply held view. And I think it would be right. a real shame to lose it. Well, it sure is being tested now. I mean, you have states saying women who are pregnant can't leave and the people who drive them across state lines will be arrested. 
I mean, I, I, I hear echoes of Fugitive Slave Act stuff when I hear that. And, um, I, and I know how much that tore the country apart back then. And it's, I, well, you know, some of this, uh, I, I really think, and this may be an antiquated notion of, 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 uh, kind of a, a muscular national liberal and progressive approach. I really think that it's important that we continue, even as we understand that states have to be the laboratories for progress and experimentation on everything, including reproductive rights, but environmental protection, many other things, that the goal should be one country with one approach. And, and uh, you know, I, I, for example, was struck when I visited the mall in Washington, D.C., uh, where there's now a World War II memorial. It's about 20 years old yep. um, near the Washington Monument. And, it's, and it, you know, it's it's nice. It's like one of those memorials. But one thing it does is it each, it's got 50 pillars for the 50 states. And I thought when I visited it, you know, that is not how they fought World War II. They were one country. FDR was leading the national government. It wasn't the Connecticut militia. <laughs> fighting right. on Guadalcanal. You know, That's a but, very good observation. And it was this sort of after-the-fact, small government, states' rights notion of how the country is set up that, that I think, it look, this is, of course, a great struggle all throughout history. Uh, states' rights versus federal government, it's, it's very often a code word for we want to oppress people in our states <laughs> and don't tell us not to. But uh, we, I, I hope we all will continue to speak up for the notion that we're one one country. That, I think, is going to have to be our last word. Um, the work of the Brennan Center is fabulous. I mean, I, 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 it's the it's the essential essential organization that sort of rises above the partisan stuff to give information that every news organization in the country needs and uses on a regular basis. The book is fabulous. The work at the Brennan Center is fabulous. I really appreciate the time you've given me. Thank you so much. And for folks who are interested in the ongoing work of the Brennan Center, uh, we have weekly newsletters that are um, spam-free, highly nutritious, and talk about the the struggles and issues around democracy and justice, and you can sign up on our website. 